Well, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes these words to the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice in service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. There is an old expression. It's really old. The English adage has been around for over 400 years. It's timeless because it's so indicative of human nature. I'm sure you've heard it. When the cat's away, the mice will play. In other words, where there's no supervision, people do as they please. And this shows up most frequently in the workplace. Often when the boss is out of the office, the workers take some time off. Very little work gets done. In fact, there's an old FedEx commercial. I really love it. It best dramatizes this idea. Let me roll it for you. Thanks. Have a good day. Mr. Delaney's office. Oh, hello, Mr. Delaney. You're not feeling well? I'm sorry. Yes, I can have that ready for you, and you'll be stopping in to pick it up? Oh, you'll stop in tomorrow. And what about the big presentation today at 2 o'clock? Absolutely, I'll have them conference you in from home. Okay. Feel better, Mr. Delaney. Obviously, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Everybody in that office liked to play golf, and when Mr. Delaney was away, everybody played. This is an age-old problem for human beings. Most folks are externally motivated. They require an immediate supervisor to see to it that they stay on task. If there's not someone setting the pace, productivity slows to a crawl. And this is not just the case vocationally. It's also true morally and spiritually. An external authority is needed. This was the reason God gave the law to Moses. Moses, the lawgiver, received a set of rules from God. God's law became the external authority. Without it, societal mores would have degenerated to the lowest common denominator. Human beings like to take the path of least resistance and live according to their baser instincts. If it feels good, do it. Look out for number one, etc., etc. Thus, sinners have to be chaperoned lest they run wild. Perhaps this is the biggest distinctive of the Christian life. For when a person comes to Jesus, God puts his Holy Spirit and thus his intentions inside of us. 
The Holy Spirit becomes an inner instinct and impulse that both enlightens us and prods us in a Godward direction. The Christian becomes internally motivated. The need dissipates to have someone always looking over our shoulder. If you're talking about a pastor in his congregation, you should be able to say, when the cat's away, the mice will pray. Or when the cat's away, the mice will stay on track. Real Christians have an inner compass. This was Paul's experience with the church in Philippi. For he commends them in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. A cat named Paul was in Rome. He was in prison, awaiting trial before the emperor. Yet in his absence, the spiritual further of the mice that he left behind remained undiminished. The Philippians had stayed committed to the gospel. They didn't need Paul in the office, so to speak, to make sure they did their jobs. They obeyed the will of God because God's Spirit had put it into their heart to obey, not because a supervisor was on location holding their feet to the fire. You remember Paul's previous thoughts in verses 9 through 11. He cast a spotlight on the exaltation of our Lord Jesus. Paul told us that God also has highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, this unbelieving world we live in is going to see Jesus for who he really is. Not just the carpenter from Nazareth, but the King of heaven, the creator of earth, the Lord of glory, the world is going to see him in all of his exalted glory. They're going to say, wow, and then they're all going to bow. It's going to be a wow and bow. But what sets the Christian apart is that we wow and we bow, but we do it now. We've bowed to his authority now in this life. We've humbled ourselves. We've acknowledged that Jesus is our only hope. He died to forgive us. He rose to lead us. He knows more about life than we do, and we're trusting that his way is best. We have adopted his mindset. We're no longer living for ourselves, but for God and for others. And it's interesting, when our knee bows, it triggers a work in our hearts. God's spirit goes to work in us. I'm sure you know why we put our wedding rings on the fourth finger of our left hand. There's an ancient tradition. The ancients believed that the vein running under that finger ran straight to the heart. They even call it the vena amoris or the vein of love. Well, I'm puzzled that no one has ever assumed that there's an anatomical connection between your knee and your heart. It makes more sense to me. For when you bow your knee and surrender to Jesus, changes occur in your heart. Paul tells us in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Understand, Christianity is an inside job. 
God's spirit works in us, in our spirit, motivating us and molding us and making us after the likeness of Jesus. I hope you realize that not all superheroes are created equal. Take Batman and Spider-Man, for example. The Cape Crusader, Batman, he's actually a wealthy tycoon named Bruce Wayne. He fights crime with cool gadgets and with bat know-how. He has a superior intellect and acute detective skills and a mastery of the martial arts, but he has no real superpowers. Other than being highly motivated, being talented, being a rich guy, Batman is for the most part like you, except better. (laughs) Whereas Spider-Man is just the opposite. While in high school, Peter Parker, he was bit by a radioactive spider. You know all this, I'm sure. The next day, he woke up with spider-like abilities. Now he can spin webs and climb up buildings and stick on walls. See, Batman is a hard worker, a high achiever. He made superhero status the old-fashioned way. He earned it. Whereas Spider-Man is this timid teenager who has this encounter that alters his life. He receives privileges he doesn't deserve. You could say he's a byproduct of grace. And remember that famous line that challenges him. Now with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Realize Christians are like Spider-Man, not Batman. I know wow, bow, now sounds a lot like pow, zowie, kapow, Batman words. But you are not the hardworking, high-achieving rich guy who overcomes evil through their own willpower. That's not you. Spiritually speaking, we're more like the high school Peter Parker who's flawed and on, on his own is a failure. Yet we were bit by God's grace. And we've been transformed by an encounter with the Holy Spirit. A Christian has received a new nature All the superpowers of life and light and love and peace and joy have invaded our hearts. Paul says that God works in us both to do and to will for his good pleasure. Notice, both to do and to will. When it comes to God's purposes, not only are we empowered by God to perform them, we're also inspired by God to prefer them. He gives us the desire to obey. A Christian follows God not because God forces us to follow, but because we want to follow. He changes our want-tos. Our wants change. I'm not obeying him out of duty, but out of delight. We're given the willpower to want as well as the real power to actually get it done. Both come from God. This is the miracle of the new birth. We talk about it so glibly sometimes, but this is truly miraculous. Christians aren't well-resourced, extremely talented do-gooders like Batman. No, we're like transformed Peter Parkers. When Peter got bit by the radioactive spider, surprisingly, spider-like qualities appeared in him the next day. And when I get touched by the Spirit of Jesus, the qualities of Jesus start showing up in me. This is why Paul points out that the Philippians, they didn't need a supervisor, for they had a superpower working in them to help them follow God and to walk in his will. And as with Peter Parker, 
Paul challenges the Philippians with this great power also comes great responsibility. This is what it means in verse 12 when Paul writes to them and says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that God has worked it in, your responsibility is to work it out. Now notice, Paul doesn't say work for your own salvation as if it's a reward for our labor. Not so. Nor does he say work on your salvation as if it's the result of your own personal ingenuity and design. Again, not so. Nor does he say work in your own salvation as if it's some discipline that you can kind of drill yourself into accepting by repetition. Remember Jesus' final words on the cross? He said, it is finished. Everything that has formed our salvation was completed prior to arriving and provoking a response in us. It occurred on the cross. That's when our salvation was finished. In fact, before the creation of the world, God worked on it and strategized every detail. At the cross, Jesus paid for it, even with his own blood. And when you gave your life to him, the Spirit implants it in your heart. No, you can't work for it or work on it or work it in, but you can work it out. For this is what Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's Christian living in a nutshell. We work out what God worked in. God is the artist, whereas we are the brushes. God is the spark, whereas we are the steering. God is the catalyst, whereas we are the channel. God is the change agent, whereas we open up the valve. God revs up the engine, whereas we release the brake and pop it into gear. God puts in us the life of Christ. We take on the mind of Christ. God changes my spirit while I change my mind. This is what it means to work out your own salvation. You deeply believe. You're serious about your faith. Now you need to start living out what you believe. This is gospel living. And a partnership here is implied. You know, it's been said, man can do nothing without God, and God will do nothing without man. Man can do nothing, but God will do nothing. Certainly, God is the headliner in our salvation. Jesus plays a starring role, but he has given us a cameo. We respond to God in faith. We trust him with the implications of what he's done. A Christian carries salvation out to its conclusions. The classical Greek phrase that gets translated working out, as in working out your own salvation, it's used of a mathematician who crunched the numbers. He's figuring it out. He's factoring out the equation to reach its final answer. And this is what we're to do with our salvation. We're to run it to its logical end. We're to allow it to produce all of its different implications in our lives. I once read a quote. I really like this quote. The gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. And it does. It's true. Think of it. God himself braved our world. He laid aside the perks of deity. He came with no fanfare or reputation. He became a servant. 
He wrapped himself in our limitations and obeyed the will of God to the point of the cross. And then the gospel tells me, Sandy, let this mind that you saw in Jesus also be in you. Man, that messes up my plans. I was hoping to be big stuff, not a servant. I was climbing the ladder. Now I'm shimmying back down. The gospel slams on the brakes. It changes my course. The implications are endless. And it's up to us now to think this through. Not how it affects the other guy, but how it affects me and my life. This is why we work out our own salvation. Often the Bible gets criticized for not taking a more definitive stance on certain issues. As if it leaves certain matters untouched. Take slavery, for example. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7 says that new believers who were slaves should remain slaves and should use their place in society to launch a Christian witness. Well, the critics read that and they condemn the Bible for not attacking an evil institution. But here's where the critics are short-sighted. For Paul knew that in working out our salvation, there would never be any room in a person's heart for bondage. The gospel would prove that Christian love and liberty are incompatible with slavery. Though the Bible doesn't forbid the idea per se, it does better than that. It sows the seeds of liberty in our hearts. If it had condemned slavery outright, it would have abolished the institution, but it would have done nothing to change the evil that causes it. But the gospel works from the inside out. It changes human institutions by changing human hearts. This is why I say the gospel meddles with everything else on earth. Its ramifications touch every aspect of life. It changes the language of the construction worker that he uses on the job. Suddenly he cleans it up. It causes a used car salesman to alter his sales approach. It provides an athlete with new motivation. It creates a new purpose in a marriage. It alters the way a college student spends his or her free time. It compels the Hispanic man to love his black neighbor. It forces the black man to forgive his white neighbor. It provokes compassion for the person struggling with a same-sex attraction while it causes that person to open up to God's ideal for sexuality. See, the gospel gives the suicidal person a reason to hope, the mentally ill person a path to peace, a lonely person the assurance they're not alone. The gospel is the most powerful change agent on the planet. My youngest son, he is a fidgety guy. Best way I can describe him. He's just sort of fidgety. He's always looking for something to touch or to handle. I mean, it's like a fixation. He gets in my car and he wants to glove, go through my glove box. Or he's looking at the console, he's picking stuff up, rolling it over in his hands and stuff. He sits down in my office and he wants to handle all the knickknacks that I got sitting on my desk. It drives me nuts. I usually have to yell at him and say, Mac, keep your cotton-picking hands off my stuff. He meddles with everything. But the gospel is like Mac. When it's received and believed, you become aware of its far-reaching implication. It starts meddling with your stuff. 
It starts putting its prints on every aspect of your life. You can't remain the same. You can't have the same attitudes. And your immediate reaction is to shout, Lord, leave me alone. Oh, you don't want to say that. Don't say that. Who are you to say such a thing to Jesus? Remember, every knee will bow to Jesus. Don't bow now only to rise up when Jesus starts to meddle. No, let Jesus be Lord. Let him get his hands on your stuff. Let him tell you how to live. He knows better than you do. Hey, you need him to get into your business. If it bothers you for Jesus to meddle, it's because you've taken back your stuff. It's not really his. You've taken it back. If it's his, he can do with it as he pleases. You won't be so antsy. If you're a Christian, your business is his business. And you're better off letting him into your business. This is why Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In the Greek, it's phobos and tromos. Remember, it's the almighty we're dealing with. If that knowledge doesn't create a phobia, some sweaty palms, some knocking knees, something's wrong. I know he loves us. I know he calls us friends. We sang about it a few minutes ago. But if Jesus doesn't deserve my respect, then why do I think he's big enough to solve my problems? If I don't fear him, why should my enemies? A savior before whom you don't fear and tremble is not much of a savior. Jesus is not to be trifled with. You don't play games with God. There needs to be some fear and trembling. I read this past week an analogy that compared the Christian life to a journey across the ocean. There are different ways that a person could navigate such a voyage. I could board a canoe with an oar and start paddling. But hey, it wouldn't take long before I would burn out. I'd be totally exhausted. My best efforts wouldn't get me across the seas. Or I could take the opposite approach. Rather than trust in my own efforts, I could purchase an inner tube. I could just do nothing, just drift. Just sort of lay out on the inner tube and expect the waves and the tides to get me to the other side. You know, I'm afraid that would be just as frustrating. Neither rowing or drifting would get me to the other shore. Or I could board a sailboat with fresh sails and with a workable rudder. Hey, it wouldn't be up to me to sail that boat any more than it would be for me to make the wind blow. But neither would my role be passive. I would have a part to play. For when God sends the wind, it would be up to me to lift my sails and to steer in a windward direction. And likewise... Though it is God who sends the wind. Without it, we're stuck going nowhere. Our paddling is futile. Our drifting is worthless. But when that wind blows, it's up to us to cooperate and to put ourselves in a position to take advantage of the gusts. This is what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, here's Christianity in a nutshell. Rather than look over your shoulder and make you do what you know you ought, God has put it in our hearts. 
He has worked in us to do and to will of his good pleasure. Then what he works in, we're supposed to work out. And here's what that looks like to work out your own salvation. Verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Once I read about two groups of Maryland firefighters. They were from neighboring counties. They arrived at the burning house simultaneously. It was unclear which fire department had jurisdiction, so a fight erupted between the two crews over who was responsible for putting out the fire. An irony of all ironies. The house burned to the ground while the cops tried to separate the firefighters. And this is the story of many churches. We complain and we argue with each other while hell rages and while its population grows. We're not saving people from the fire because we're too busy complaining and arguing with one another. Author Kent Hughes, he writes of a Dallas church that made the newspapers when both halves of the congregation each filed a lawsuit to keep the other half of the congregation from coming onto the church property. Two restraining orders. Can you imagine? What could have possibly caused a breach so severe? Well, the dispute started at a churchwide potluck when one of the elders was served a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him. Wow. We should be careful at our Wednesday night dinners. Hey, understand folks can get petty. Folks are human, and humans complain at times. Where grumbling gains traction in a church is when it's entertained, when it falls on tolerant ears, even eager ears. Hey, if that complainer is immediately confronted, hey, we don't want to hear your belly aching around here, it won't last. The grumbler will get mad or leave or both. But it ruins a church when that kind of attitude is allowed to take root and grow. Remember what Paul spoke of earlier in Philippians. A gospel-oriented person realizes that God is in control. Paul even saw his imprisonment as God's way of advancing the gospel. Paul had learned that our inconveniences are actually God's opportunities. Hey, when your perspective is that orientated toward the gospel, there's no more room for complaining and for disputing. Instead, you'll be blameless and harmless, as we're told in verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What a vivid description of our world today. Crooked and perverse. Rather than straight, this world has been bent We are seriously twisted and contorted out of our original shape. You see, none of us are any longer what we were meant to be. Recently, shock jock Howard Stern, of all people, he made this comment. You're warped. I'm warped. We're all warped. That's a biblical statement from Howard Stern. It actually sounds like Paul. Every one of us is born warped or twisted in some manner. This means you can say you were born a specific way, a homosexual or a kleptomaniac 
or an alcoholic or violent or prone to this or that tendency. And though we can argue whether you were or your behavior represents a passive choice, it really doesn't matter. For the way we were born is not necessarily a good thing. We're all born sinners. And that's a very bad thing. We're all twisted in some way or the other, and the results of our twistedness are negative, not positive. Everyone in this world has been born twisted in some form or fashion. We are a perverse generation. But here's the question for gospel-oriented people. The gospel has the power to straighten out our twistedness, to make us right again. So how do we reach a crooked world? And the answer is not by condemning or critiquing the crookedness. Paul says we'll impact our world by being blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Harmless means simple and untangled. How winsome is it to meet someone who's untangled, who just lives a simple life, who has clear motivations, who knows who they are and knows where they're going? Rather than duplicity, think integrity. The world needs to know that our only motivation toward them is good. They're good. And blameless. We need to be blameless. Now realize, blameless doesn't mean perfect. We all sin. But the blameless person owns and addresses his or her sin. We don't deny it or hide it or make excuses. The blameless person has admitted his sin and made amends. Any accusation is just old news. See, the way you straighten out crooked people is by being straight up with people. That's how you do it. As Paul says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice our job isn't to fight the darkness. It's not to condemn the darkness, but it's to shine the light. A bright light is what drives out the darkness. If you want to in the darkness in a room, just go and turn on the lights. That's what we're being called, we've been called to do. There's a story called The Whisper Test. It's from the memoirs of a woman named Mary Ann Bird. Mary Ann was born with a cleft palate. She had a crooked nose. She was deaf in one ear. You can imagine the kids in her school were not very sensitive to Mary Ann's feelings. Her classmates would always ask her, what happened to your lip? Mary Ann would always answer, I cut it on a piece of glass. It was less embarrassing for her to chalk it up to an accident than to admit that she was born that way. Well, at the school she attended, there was an annual hearing test. Mary Ann dreaded this test. Her deformity was humiliation enough. She didn't want the other kids to know about her deafness. The teacher would call a child to, the de- to her desk And she would whisper a statement to the child. Usually, the sky is blue or you have new shoes or something of that nature. The student was supposed to repeat the statement to the teacher. Mary Ann, whenever she had to do this each year, she would always try to cup her hand around her ear to sort of help her hearing. One year, Mary Ann was in Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard was everybody's favorite teacher. Fun, joyful full of surprises. Every student wanted to please Mrs. Leonard. When the day came for the whisper test and Mary Ann was called up to the teacher's desk, 
She leaned forward. She cupped her hand around her ear. Later, Marianne would write, I waited for those words, words which God must have put into her mouth, those seven words which changed my life. Miss Leonard didn't say, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. What she whispered was, I wish you were my little girl. And this is how you reach the heart of a crooked and a perverse generation. You don't dwell on their twistedness. You let them know that despite their deformities, there is a Father God who wishes they were His child. The love, this love, is what opens the door to the gospel. And according to verse 16, we live straightest, we shine brightest, holding fast the word of life. Hey, you will never work out what God has worked in without holding fast to God's word. For it's the Bible who gets us in line with God's will. You know, the worst mistake that a golfer can make is not lining up correctly. This is one of my problems. It's so frustrating. I hit a great shot, solid shot. It goes a long way. The only problem is it goes the wrong direction. Because I wasn't lining up right. I work out what was worked in, but I was lined up wrong. That's my problem. And likewise, our spiritual life gets sabotaged when we line up contrary to the truth. We live by faith, but God's faith is no good if it's not founded on God's truth. It is the forsaking of God's word that always sinks us. You should know this. I'm not really worried about the strength of this world's arguments. A crooked generation will twist the truth, but Christianity wins on logic every time. I'm not worried about the world's arguments. What eats at all of us, though, is the loudness of the voices. For where the world can't convince, it will try to bully. It'll shout and scream and push back and try to pressure you into compliance. Think of a base runner rounding third, headed for home, he sees he's out by a country mile. His only hope is to bulldoze the catcher and dislodge the ball. This is the world's strategy. It knows it's out by a country mile. The only way that crooked people can claim to be safe is by bowling us over and dislodging us from the gospel. Like a tough catcher, we need to hold fast to the word of life. Jesus told us on the night before he was crucified, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Paul is happy that the Philippians are holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul had invested blood, sweat, and tears in these Philippians. Remember, Paul brought the gospel to them under much duress. He was arrested and beaten and jailed before God came in the middle of the night and delivered he and Silas. If these believers had abandoned God's word, then Paul would have considered his time and sacrifice in Philippi to be a waste. His goal was to make every minute count that they kept a firm grip on the word of God meant that his time was well spent there. Which is why he comments in verse 17, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. You know, the Philippians were Paul's great joy. It's amazing how such a sacrificial relationship could bring a man such joy. Notice the peculiar picture that Paul paints. He sees the faith of these Philippians as a lamb on the altar. As a sacrifice, a slaughtered lamb laying on the altar. The sacrifice in service of your faith. Perhaps he was thinking of what he had written to the Romans when he called all Christians to be a living sacrifice. Here the Philippians are now on the altar. But if the Philippians were the sacrifice, Paul calls himself the drink offering. In Judaism and even among the pagan Romans, animal sacrifices were seasoned with a drink offering. A concoction of herbs and juice and spices were poured out on top of the dressed sacrifice which was burning on the altar. It would season and tenderize the meat. The drink offering gave off a delicious aroma. We're talking holy barbecue sauce. Sort of like spiritual steak sauce. And Paul was an A1 servant of Christ. This is how Paul envisions himself. He is the drink offering. He lived in such a way that it accentuated the Philippians' faith. And here's what I want to ask you. Are you a drink offering on someone else's sacrifice to Jesus? Are you a drink offering? Do you accentuate someone else's devotion to Jesus? You can be when you give to a missionary or when you pray for a pastor or when you thank your child's Sunday school teacher for teaching them this morning or when you support a struggling friend or when you encourage a brother in Christ. Are you building up the faith of another? I hope you are. But here's the kicker. Notice this. Once the drink offering was applied, it was no longer seen. It was absorbed into the meat so that the only person who knew its influence was the one who tasted it when he ate the meat. That meant that though the sacrificial lamb was seen by everyone, the drink offering was only appreciated by God alone to whom the sacrifice was offered. And this should speak volumes to us. Paul took joy. He experienced gladness. He rejoiced over a relationship that no one appreciated but God. This isn't just joy at half-mast. It's joy when the flag doesn't flap at all, when no one else sees what's happening. But God could. Paul's friends could. And apparently that was enough for Paul. What about us? Do we like to serve only when we're seen? Well, here in Philippians, Paul teaches us, he's been teaching us to be gospel-oriented Christians. And here's more of what that means. Are we working out what God has worked in? Are we letting the gospel meddle in our stuff and in our business? Is it shaping every area of our life? Have you put a lid on your complaining? There's a crooked, twisted world out there that desperately needs Jesus. And are we holding fast to the word of life and shining the love of God into the world's darkness? And last but not least, are we willing 
to be poured out for the sake of others. Let's all be A1 servants of our Lord Jesus.